loneliness and depression are at epidemic levels. As a society, we're battling to bring down our suicide rates, especially among the young. There's fear for the future, despair. What's the answer? Where's the meaning? Is there any hope? This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Well, it's fantastic to have with me on Zoom, Mark Hadley, Signs of the Times, media, cultural critic. How are you, Mark? I am great. Thanks, Kent. I'm, like most people, I'm, I'm enjoying the fact that I don't actually ever have to lose the, leave the home. So here am I sitting as warm as I possibly can. Your uh, listeners can en- envisage me in a hoodie and a pair of tracksuit pants. It's something I'd never wear to work otherwise. <laughs> okay, I have to admit, I imagine that you probably previously spent a lot of your your time working from home, like being a you know freelance and and, and that sort of thing. Is is that not the case? Well, it is actually true. I have spent a vast amount of my work time sort of locked away in our home studio or in our home offices. Well, that's why I spend most of my time writing. Uh, the only difference now is that thanks to the COVID crisis, all of our children have joined us at home. So we're finding that. We're doing our normal work environment, which we thought we were very ready to do, but at the same time, just having three teenagers around trying to make as much noise as they possibly can. So again, for your listeners, if they hear something that sounds like a herd of elephants passing in my background, <laughs> that is in fact just my children going from one room to another. <laughs> that sounds like it could be um, yeah, a, a little bit of a struggle that you all thought you were set up and complications. So are the, are the kids sort of heading back to school now? In a sort of a scattered way, we've got three boys at three different schools and as God would have it, all three schools have decided to do three different staggered programs and so we seem to be sending someone to school every day. It's just a potluck to see who it is. Oh, okay. But as far as work is concerned, I mean, when it comes to the movies, I've noticed that a couple of movies have actually delayed their release. I mean, I was hanging out for the sequel of Top Gun, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and bringing back my misspent youth. And no, they decided we, we won't release it now, we'll release it later because no one will be at the cinema. Is, like, when it comes to movie reviews and that aspect of your work, are you, are you finding that's being disrupted a bit? Yeah, definitely. Obviously, because of the cinemas have closed, we're not dealing much with film reviews at the moment. But others have taken a different path and they've decided that they're going straight to digital download. So Sonic the Hedgehog, which was going to get a film release, has jumped straight over and is now available for digital download. And there are a few others like that. Extraction, you know, Chris Hemsworth was going to be a cinema release. Now it's going straight to, in fact, it's available on Netflix now. And that's really what's changed for us. On the one hand, you'd think, oh, you know, a, a little while, there was a little shaky territory there where we were, because we provide reviews to a lot of different publications that we thought to ourselves, what, what are we going to do until suddenly the world discovered streaming video? Netflix and Stan and Prime Video, and there's plenty for us to watch. In fact, uh, when I'm not sitting in front of a microphone chatting to people, then I am busy lying on a couch somewhere watching television. It's a difficult life, people, but somebody has to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and it's interesting because even before this whole COVID-19 thing, there were some out there who were proclaiming that streaming killed the cinema star, you know, and that the era of cinema was was on the decline. Do you think it's ever going to be the same again? I think that we are going to change the way we do a lot of things just by virtue of what we've gotten into. But I don't think 
that cinemas are going to be a a huge victim because there is there's something that we've actually noticed we really want back. Mm-hmm. Cinemas provide a sort of a communal going out experience. It's one thing to sit at home and watch a film. It's another thing to sit in a crowded cinema with you know five hundred other people and watch it. The the feelings are quite different. The sense of event is different, and that's what we're kind of missing at the moment. Here we are all locked away in our own little bolt holes. And the truth is that we're actually feeling a bit starved, even though we can listen to lots of voices and see people on video calls like Zoom and things like that. The truth is that we're actually missing that physical presence. And cinemas have always provided that. Again, they'll come back and, and they'll be fine. The, people have predicted the death of cinema a lot over the, over the decades. This one will, in fact, actually probably turn out to be just as, as mispredicted. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I, I hope so. And I have to admit, yeah, I think despite all the electronic means we have of staying in touch with people, I'm, I'm just really looking forward to being able to hug people. Yes. <laughs> so maybe maybe yes. that's just me. I'm a bit, bit of a hugger, but yeah, I'll be really enjoying a, a, a bit of a hug, I think, at the end of all this. <laughs> So there's a warning to anybody who knows Ken very well in the first <laughs> week of things going off just to, to try and keep that social distancing. <laughs> the truth is that we're all suffering from something that, you know, is, is starting to get various labels. Some of it is, you know, people talk about e-fatigue or Zoom fatigue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really because even though we can see people and see their expressions and such, we're not getting the full picture that we normally have with people. Now, you've mentioned just physical touch, but there's also Mm. lots of visual cues and even audio makes it hard sometimes to pick up the nuances and the way a person is speaking to us. So every conversation becomes an effort. And then when if you, I don't know if you've been in one of those meetings where there's 10 people or maybe more on a Zoom call, all of those people thrown at us all at once just just triples and quadruples that, that sort of sense of fatigue because we're concentrating twice as hard to get a tenth of the meaning. So mm-hmm. I feel like even though we've, we've discovered that we can be connected in ways that we, we never thought possible, now we're actually finding that that's just not enough for us. And that's, that's pretty interesting too. Yeah, yeah. Mark Hadley, um, in the interest of cheering us up, of course, you've, you've written an article in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. If, if I can quote you back to you, this is your idea of cheering us up. To be born in the 21st century, you write, is to be born into an era of hopelessness. Well, thanks for that, mate. That. <laughs> but, yeah. but, 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 but seriously, like, please, please explain. What, what do you mean? To, what did you mean by that? Well, for the people who are listening and wondering why that was actually going to be a positive ending, I just want to say it does get better from here. It is absolutely true that we live in an age on which the current generation see themselves, for many reasons, to have a hopeless future. And that's not just me sort of chatting to a few people and getting that impression. Statistically, hope is actually in small supply, whether you're talking to psychologists or economists or other sociologists, you'll see that people are actually discovering that generationally speaking, the current generation, and particularly millennials Mm. uh, as a collection of generations, have less hope. In fact, in terms of the need for a psychiatric or psychological intervention, uh, this generation requires far more help than any generation that came before. Up to 17% of these current generations are depressed and 14% suffer from anxiety, which in terms of statistics for previous generations is about three times what we'd expect. Mm. So there's a real problem in this current generation because they really don't have hope. So when you're talking about millennials, I mean, I guess I've kind of got to keep up with it because 
each generation keeps getting older. So the millennials are now people in their, what, they're early, even up to mid-30s. They're sort of starting families. They're, they've really entered the thick of, of adult life. Is, is that correct? Yeah, so millennials would basically think of people who are born in the last part of uh, the last century. So, you know, sometime in the mid-90s and mm. forward. Anyone whose personality and life view has been largely shaped by the new millennium. And the new millennium has particular things about it, which these generations have had to take on as normal, which previous generations haven't. And so those particular things that are shaping them are creating a sense of, of edginess and right from edginess and anxiety through to often despair as they contemplate their future. I mean, there's an interesting statistic that came out regards millennials and the idea that only a third of millennials mm. believe that they will actually live to be better off than their parents. So, you know, there was a time, I guess, you know, maybe in my generation, which is much older, where in which people were thinking that, you know, I'm going to achieve and I'm going to do that a little bit better than my parents. And that's the idea that, you know, we'd all, life itself would deliver some of that. I'd work hard and that'd deliver the rest. But the truth is we saw the future as something that was full of hope. Whereas a less than you know, two out of three millennials now actually believe that their life is going to be worse by the time their parents leave this planet and and continue to be so and now that's a pretty disturbing statistic when you look out at, at the young fresh faces that are around us yeah yeah so much for, for human progress and understand it's not just what millennials believe but there is actually like statistical evidence to yeah. back up like in terms of home ownership rates, for example. I mean, I guess previous generations, you know, had the benefits of the sort of Whitlam era, you know, free education and, you know, free university education and things like that. That has been sort of chipped away at and chipped away at since then. It's just not the same anymore, is it? Now, that's true. We've actually, back in the late 80s, early 90s, we started to make a shift in politics, particularly in Australia, towards what was then referred to as a user pays model. And, mm. and the philosophy behind the user pays model was the idea that if you wanted something, you had to earn it, you had to pay for it. There were no free gifts. Whereas previous generations, uh, baby boomers and forward, saw large amounts of economic benefit that could be distributed to everybody just by virtue of being part of a society. And so you had Whitlam era education, free education, and you had social services supporting people in difficult times and things like that. That harder view of the world around us is sort of tied to an idea of economic disparity and increasing economic disparity. The idea that some people are going to get rich and, and a lot more of us are not going to, that we might never own homes, mm. that uh, we, the great Australian dream is still there. There's still a great many people who would like to see home ownership as part of their future. But statistically speaking, fewer and fewer people actually believe that they'll make it. And that's, that's an interesting thing. Whereas once upon a time, the idea that, you know, all Australians would end up in a quarter acre block somewhere on, you know, in a suburb with 2.6 children and a dog is, you know, it's still out there as an ideal, but it's less and less likely that people feel they're actually going to reach it. But it's not just the economic situation that's actually dragging people down. We actually have a sense of foreboding doom about the planet. So I was actually reading a study, uh, there's a, a great Australian study called the Millennials Report 2020, and it actually talks about the attitude 
of people who are millennials and it encapsulates them in the opinions of a made-up person. This made-up person is Sarah. And so they, they look at Sarah, and I refer to her in the article, they look at Sarah and they say, you know, her classic persona is that she believes that global warming emissions is the most pressing environmental threat and currently does everything she can to look after the environment, but not with much hope that it's actually going to be able to do anything, that, that the people who caused all the problem are slowly shuffling off the mortal coil and she's going to be left to clean up the mess. And she doesn't have much faith in the politics of the situation because all through her 20s, she's been watching various political parties promise progress and never actually quite deliver. So there's this sense of, of a great environmental doom, not just an economic one, but an environmental doom adding to this pressure of hopelessness that's pushing down on millennials today. And so again, it seems as though they're not just struggling with trying to get a crust, so to speak, but also struggling with the idea that even if they do manage to get their home dream or their dream job, something like that, even if they manage to come out from under the shower, the uh, shadow of COVID, they're not going to enter into a world that has much hope, that in fact the sun is somewhat setting on you know, the environmental future of the planet. And with that both personal and larger existential lack of hope, it comes up with a, a pretty grim view of the future for people as they start to think about where they're going to be in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if you'll allow me to theorise a little about history for, for a while, Mark, I guess you know, in previous centuries, you know, we saw things like, you know, the Industrial Revolution where people used the word progress, you know, with a capital P. The whole sort of, you know, Karl Marx, you know, believed that there was this natural progression of humanity from one stage to another and it would get better and better and better until we reached, you know, communist utopia. Obviously, the reality of communism didn't quite match that dream. You know, the 20th century saw two world wars, you know, it's a horrific, you know, genocides and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and in sort of philosophical and academic circles, people started to question this notion of progress, this notion that, you know, everything is going to get better, that we can solve all our problems through rationality. And people started to say, well, you, you know what, these elites who keep selling us this message of, of progress they seem to have their own agenda. They only seem to be really about feathering their own nests. So can we mm. really believe them? Can we believe mm. any elites? Can we believe any authorities? Can we believe any experts? And we started to see this emergence of philosophy that you pick up in your article, which is, you know, postmodernism. And I guess that in academia that was happening in the, you know, the 70s or even earlier. But it seems that now in this millennial generation, we have a group of people for whom this is sort of, this idea of postmodernism, you know, is sort of bedrock belief. Does that make sense to you? And uh, absolutely. Unpack that a bit more. Absolutely. The sort of secular humanism that you're talking about in the early 20th century, the idea that if we all knuckled down, we could actually make a utopia out of this planet. And people had various recipes for the utopia. Mm. Like you said, communists believed that if, if we got rid of personal ownership and distributed the wealth fairly, then, then that would give us the utopia. And in fact, actually, capitalists thought that quite the opposite, that if we just allowed people to be free of, of control and they would also be able to sort of distribute things fairly, but based on effort. There are all different approaches to creating a utopia, but the truth is that as somewhere along the, the way, the Great World Wars, the Depression and such just gave the lie to the idea that humans could make a better world. And so we swing as a pendulum way through to the postmodernism you mentioned, 
from I've got the answer, uh, socially speaking, to there is no answer. You know, an interesting thing happened in politics in Australia around the uh, 1980s and 1990s. Political observers refer to as the death of ideology, that people stopped following political parties because they stood for a particular thing. Mm. So if you remember, uh, like the Liberal Party was always about enterprise and the ability for people to actually work hard to, to to establish their businesses and to make jobs for other people. And that would lift all society up. And the Labor Party was very much about social policy and the, the fact that it was important to create a, a social safety net for those in society who were struggling the most and we had a duty of care to them. But now we don't really follow those ideologies anymore. Those ideologies have died. And the Labor Party and the Liberal Party have moved so close to each other that it's really just a trading of policies. It's very hard to get a knife between them. And you have now very much situational politics and a series of events arise. And we're just looking to see which team can come up with the best solution. There's no ideology. We're just following practicality. That's one of the political fallouts of being in a a postmodern world where there's no real truth. But one of the things we destroyed when we got rid of the idea that there was no real truth is we we stopped being able to hope. And I I know that might sound weird, but let me see if I can map this out for you. Basically what happened... You actually talk about two kinds of of two definitions of hope. I I see you're going to get there as as you unpack this. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, like initially, hope, if you look hope up in the dictionary, you'll find that it's, you know, a, a, an idea that you're actually going to have a feeling of expectation or desire for a particular thing to happen. Now, hope is a maybe thing. And that's basically what happens in a postmodern world. Since nothing can be true, nothing can be relied on. And since nothing can be relied on, the best you can have in terms of hope is an idea that it might come off and you can look forward to it, but you don't build on it because you can't build on hope. Hope is, by definition, in a postmodern world, an ephemeral thing, something you just can't quite grasp. You've just got to hope that it'll land and, and it will all be better. And that's the hope that this current millennial collection of generations, the millennials have. That's the hope they've grown up with. You can't be certain of anything. There is no explanation to life. There's no certainty. And if there's no certainty, then hope becomes a bit ghost-like, a bit out in the future. Mm. But that's not the same definition of hope that previous generations worked on. Previous generations used a, a much older definition of hope, the idea that hope was equated to trust, a feeling of trust. And the difference is that in the first one, there's nothing solid, but trust is actually not um, hoping that something will happen. Trust is relying on something to happen. Mm. You're trusting in something. The word trust, Mark, always sounds a bit more relational to me. It's, Mm. you know, it's, it's sort of part of of a healthy relationship that you, you have trust in, in the other person. It is sort of warmer and, and more solid than, than hope in some ways. Exactly. And look, if, um, if I might use an old illustration and those people have heard this already can forgive me and those who haven't heard it before can pretend I came up with it, but there, (laughs) there's this idea of, of hope and a chair, so to speak, that, you know, you don't hope as you sit down on a chair that it's going to hold up your weight. If you have any knowledge of that chair whatsoever, you're trusting in it to actually hope. So that's the older definition of hope that, you know, you have a knowledge of the thing that you are putting your hope in. And so your hope is confident. Mm. Whereas, uh, and so when you talk about it relationally, you have 
a great hope in getting home to see your family because you know your family and you can trust in them that it's going to they're, they're for you and that they're going to be good for you so your hope in getting home i can't wait to get home is a solid thing whereas if I was going to a place where I knew no one and I had no one I could particularly trust in, then I hope it's a good time when I arrive, but my hope becomes an ephemeral thing. And so millennially speaking, people have no real certainties and so no real certain hope. And that's really one of the things that's making it even more difficult to deal with difficult economic times or an uncertain environmental future because there's no strong basis for hope. There's no relational basis, if you like, for hope. Mm -hmm. I think in your article, maybe you could probably say it a bit more explicitly now than you do in your article, but you, you seem to suggest that a part of this loss of hope may be connected with Western societies in particular loss of of religion you know we we used to be a pretty strongly judeo-christian nation in in australia it's no longer the case as it is in the west you know generally is that a part of this loss of hope do you think oh without a doubt because uh, despite the fact that this current generation is facing a climactic crisis a grim, almost apocalyptic future, it's not actually the first time that a generation has faced this. Uh, I mean, it's very, very easy to march back, historically speaking, and see that Generation X, you know, that comes before the millennials, was facing the prospect of nuclear annihilation. So for those of us who are listening, remember, there are all sorts of programs and songs and books about what it would be like to grow up or to live in a nuclear devastated planet. And then prior to that, uh, the baby boomers were living in a world where in which Cold War was going on. So there was a certain sort of suspicious fear of what, in fact, the superpowers would do if they were given the opportunity to, to go at each other. And we'd all be swept up in that. And so the Cuban Missile Crisis is part of that. In fact, there was an interesting study done on the number of children that were conceived probably during the Cuban Missile Crisis because people were afraid of the future. And then previous generations to that, the, uh, the builder generation in Australia grew up during World War II. And the mm -hmm. silent generation before that, well, they're the real lottery winners. They grew up during World War One, World War Two, and the Great Depression in between. So there have been generations that have faced great crises before that seem to drain all hope from the future. But the reason why they actually retained their sense of positivity and hope, I argue, is that culturally they were much better prepared. They lived in a world that accepted that there was a meaning, that even if things looked grim at the moment, there was a God over all things that was directing the future and they could put their hope in him, not a faint and, and anemic hope. It was, in fact, actually a hope that they could rely on because he would do what was right. He would take care of his own. He would be able to be trusted day to day. Now, when you arrive in a postmodern world where there is no truth and there is no God and there is no certainty to relationship or anything like that, well, there is no hope. And I feel like that part of the problem has not simply been that we've raised this generation in a, in a state where in which they have less prospect of jobs or, or less pros prospect of clean air. It's that they have less prospect of finding their meaning, that they have less prospect because we've told them there's nothing out there to be found. 
And that is a real tragedy. Personally, as a Christian, I argue against that every day of my life because I believe that there is a solid hope out there to be found. I believe that my my personal experience of life shows me God dealing in my life every day, but I just historically, empirically, apart from me, I see that thousands of generations have in fact actually found great security and hope in God. And if I just want to go back and look at the events, I see that the picture of what it would look like if God decided to come down to this earth, and lo and behold, I find all of that evidence in the life of Jesus. It's not a an ephemeral, light-hearted, uncertain hope. It's one that actually looks back to certain events and can build on that. And so I don't really get despairing. I'm concerned about the environment as much as the next person. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not despairing over it because I know there's a God who's in, in charge of all. Yeah. What you're saying, Mark, reminds me of a, quite a, a famous quote from what one of the founders of, of my religious tradition, the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She, uh, she said, you know, we have nothing to fear for the future except we forget God's leading in, in our past history. And I think that's, that's exactly what, you, you know, what you're referring to with like looking back to, to that evidence that, that comes you know, from the past. I, I guess my question is, though, that you know, people are increasingly suspicious of you know, elites and politicians and ideology and all, all these things you've, you've referred to. And, and, and you're suggesting that perhaps the way towards hope is perhaps you know, towards re-examining you know, Christian faith as, as a source of hope and, and as a source of meaning. But for some of our listeners, I don't know, they, they may be wondering, you know, why, why would I do that? How would I do that? Yes, I kind of see what you're doing, but I'm sort of suspicious of, of the church. There are so many Christians arguing amongst themselves and how would I even know where to start? Do you have any sort of practical suggestions there? I do indeed. I would suggest that listeners who actually feel that way are definitely touching a particular truth. That insofar as you try and build your hope on other people, you are going to be as disappointed as the fallibilities of those people. And mm. the truth is that we are all weak. So even those institutions that try and provide solid hope, I would say like a, a church or your, um, go down to your local congregation of any form, shape and size, and you're going to find a mixture of people who are trying to do what we've been talking about today, build on solid hope, and yet at the same time are failing all over the place because they're human. Uh, and so some person might actually say, well, look, look at this political party. It's no better than this particular church, and it's no better than this particular soccer club down the road. You just might as well hang around with people you like. Um, but if you built your hope on other people, yes, that would be a, a fair observation. But what I would actually encourage people to do is to go and look at the evidence for Jesus Christ, to go and actually spend time in one of the earliest documents that, that historians, whether they be secular or religious, all rely on the same documents. There is, in fact, actually no real dispute in the academic community that the way to find out about Jesus is to go read the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Matthew or Luke or John. But, you know, Mark's a great place to start. And you will discover there a unique individual, someone whose one life sent ripples through history to our present day, transforming everything. Now, that person might actually be worth your hope. That person might actually be the solid basis that you're looking for because you're going to discover, I would argue, someone who doesn't 
contain all of those particular foibles that make us less trustworthy when we come to institutions, but instead someone who's actually quite genuine. You might say, oh, look, sure thing, Mark. Well, and I just might encourage you to prove it for yourself. Go and have a look. I think the, the real tragedy about Australia today in a hopeless and postmodern environment is that people make assumptions that they know about things that they really haven't taken time to look into. So recently I was chatting with a friend and he was telling me about all the things he believed. And I said, why do you believe those things? And so he told me what he believed about the church and what he believed about Christianity. And I said, but what, what have you done? to actually base your belief on something solid. Let's, let's be clear, you know, if we're going to build our life on something, surely we owe it a couple of hours to, to look into the research or to chat to someone who might be able to tell us some more about that. So it takes two and a half hours to read the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's freely available online, and that's the oldest uh, document we have uh, of the life of Jesus. If you can read that and come out completely unchanged, then, you know, my heart bleeds for you because you're missing one of the greatest sources of hope that humanity has ever been given. Mm, wow. It's a simple challenge, but it's a potentially, you know, life-changing challenge. So, yeah, thanks so much for that, Mark. Yeah, the, the gospel of Mark, of, <laughs> who, who Mark <laughs> was named after, is, is a great place to start. It's short, it's, it's punchy. Certainly, yeah, like, as, as you pointed out, Mark, one of the early source documents of, of the life of Jesus Christ. Hey, thanks so much, uh, Mark Hadley, for, for your time this weekend, for writing for Signs of the Times. It's great to talk to you about this stuff. If you don't mind me, I'm going to go lie on my couch now and watch television. <laughs> <laughs> Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast.